<laughs> hey, bud. Thank you. Can I say one more thing? Yeah. I asked Paul, I asked Paul if I could say one more thing. What's he going to do? It's my church, you know? So, um, yeah, you stop him. Good luck. So I wanted to say, uh, Paul's given us permission to put tonight's talk and this afternoon's talk on podcast, which means it'll be free for you to go back and listen to later on blazing fire dot. Hey, okay. And the last thing I want to tell you is I love you. I love you too. So he made that sound like it was a big deal. I never don't give my permission. Just so you know. You want to hear my favorite joke? Okay. I don't tell this joke all the time, but uh, it's my favorite joke and you'll see why. And it just, it gives you a little insight into my life. It's one of these uh, guy gets to heaven kind of jokes. In this case, a guy gets to heaven and uh, he sees the pearly gates there, but he's not sure what he's supposed to do. I mean, do you just walk in or what? And Peter sees his consternation, comes out to talk to him. He says, so Peter, do I just walk in? Peter says, well, it depends. He says, it depends on something. He says, yeah. He says, like, what does it depend on? Well, it depends on how many points you have. I got to have points to get in? Oh, yeah. Well, Peter, how many points do I need? Well, you need a hundred. A hundred points, okay. He said, well, the last 15 years I've been working down at the soup kitchen on Saturdays, you know, helping with the poor and stuff. Peter says, oh yeah, I'll give you a point for that. (laughs) A point? He says, yeah, that's totally worth a point. Well, Peter, I, I... I was a pastor for 35 years. I mean, I, you know, married people and I preached on Sundays and only took, you know, when my contract said to take, I could take time. Peter goes, I don't know, man. 35 years, Peter. Okay, I'll give you a point for that. (laughs) He's thinking, that's my whole life. I got two points. (laughs) Just then he sees this other guy from the same town as he just came from. He knows him. He's, he shows up to church a couple times a year and he's got a little coffee shop downtown. Nice guy. But he walks right past them and in through the pearly gates. He says, Peter, are, are you kidding me? That guy's got a hundred points? And Peter goes, oh no, he just doesn't play this game. <laughs> right? So, <laughs> zing, yeah, whatever. So I've got a friend, his name is Jim Henderson. He lives up in Seattle and he's a, he's a vineyard pastor at one point. And Jim is a friend of mine. And Jim, he's one of these pastors who doesn't like church much. And uh, so, so he went on, he was on eBay one time, you know, the auction site. And he was on eBay and he saw that an atheist was selling his soul. Right? So he bought it. I mean, he auctioned, he, he bid for it, and he got it. He, got, he bought an atheist soul for $504. It's a recession. So, this is a true story. This is not a joke. This is like for real, okay? 
So um, Jim goes on eBay, buys an atheist soul, and the guy had said that for every 10 bucks that somebody paid for his soul, he'd spend an hour in church. Well, Jim enters a conversation with him, and through him meets another atheist whose name is Matt Casper. And um, Jim and Matt become really good friends. And actually, Matt takes up that part of the agreement. And Jim and, and, and Matt went to all kinds of different churches all over the United States. And together, they wrote a book. And you can get it in your Christian bookstore. And it's called Jim and Casper Go to Church. <laughs> it is. Right? And, and you can actually get it. And what it is, it's about an atheist perspective of different kinds of churches whether it's a Catholic or an Episcopal or a, a, you know, a Pentecostal or whatever. And um, he didn't know about you guys because you were the only blazing fire church in the world. So, uh, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> so I, I, a year ago, I was down here in San Diego. I did a conference, a rewrite conference, and because uh, uh, Jim asked me to come because he's connected to it. And Matt Casper came to meet me. So Matt comes to meet me, because I'm a friend of Jim's, and I and and I wrote the shack. So Matt comes to talk to me, and the first thing he says is, "Well, Paul, you know I'm an unbeliever, right?" And I go, "No, you're not." He goes, "Yeah, I am." I said, "No, you're not." I am so, right? It was just like I was accusing him of something, <laughs> and I said, "You're not." He said, "What do you mean I'm not?" I said, belief is an activity, not a category. And I said, you know, there's a lot of people in that category that created that category. They don't believe much either, <laughs> just, just so you know. And, uh, you know, and I said, you know what? And no, none of us have found the believer you know, that thing that tells you <laughs> like you finally believed enough, right? And he goes, what are you talking about? Well, I said, well, let me ask you this way. What do you believe in? Just tell me something you believe in. And he goes, nobody's ever asked me that, <laughs> right? So, um, he goes, I'll tell you what I believe in. I have a couple children. I believe in the way that I love them. I said, oh, really? So what kind of love is that? Tell me about this love. He said, Paul, I had no idea that I could love like this until I had children of my own. I would step in front of a bullet. There's just no questions asked. And if they're sick, I would trade places with them. I said, so, you I said, so could I describe this love as other-centered and self-giving? He said, that's exactly what it is. I said, oh. Now, Jim had let me know that Matt Casper loves the elegance of the natural order, right? Creation, right? He loves quantum theory and string theory, and he loves just the, the incredible elegance that exists inside the world, the created order for him, natural order. And um, so I said, tell me, uh, Matt, what you think about life. And he launches for like 15 minutes, right, into this whole description about life. And then I said, I got one more question for you. Can someone relate to your children in a way that's just wrong? It's wrong. And he says, absolutely. Which is a good word for an atheist, just so you know. <laughs> he says, absolutely. I said, okay. 
So far, you've told me that you believe in love, not just any kind of love, but a very specific kind of love, which is other-centered and self-giving. You believe in life and you believe in truth. And you're trying to convince me you're an unbeliever. And he laughed when I said this, but I just kind of put it in there. I said, just because you don't know his name yet, you know. (laughs) He laughed. You know, for two hours we talked, and at the end of that, Um, He hugs me goodbye, and Jim, who's standing next to us, tells me later, that was the greatest compliment I've ever heard Matt Casper give to another human being. And what Matt said to me, he hugged me and he said, I am just thrilled to know that you exist. And I'm thinking, so you believe in me too. (laughs) (laughs) See, we love to create little categories, you know, and then we can kind of control the universe. It's easy to annihilate a category. It's when you actually meet a human being that it becomes a little more difficult. And um, I get an uh, email a couple months, a few months ago, about four months ago, and it's from Matt Casper. And he says, just so you know, I'm still an atheist, but Jim and I have written another book. It's called Saving Casper. <laughs> Would you consider writing the foreword? So I did. So I wrote a foreword uh, to a book by a pastor and an atheist, right? And it's called Saving Casper. And what's really funny about that is that, that the faith-based publisher had more trouble with my foreword than they had with the whole book. <laughs> it's hilarious. So, and Matt and Jim both loved my foreword, but the, the house just had a little trouble with it. And... Um, because I talk about categories and things like this. And so, so they rewrite my foreword. The, the publisher did. You know, now here's what's really funny about this whole thing. I'm a celebrity now, just so you know. And it's, it's serious. It's the funniest thing ever. My girls have told me that I've totally ruined the idea of celebrity for them. And, uh, right? So... Uh, but now that I'm a celebrity, I sort of know everything. So if you want to ask me anything, I, can, I know it because I'm a celebrity. You want to know about global warming? Just ask me, right? How to fix a car? Yeah. How to clean septic sewer systems? No, we won't get it. That was a story from this afternoon. So, so it's kind of hilarious because none of us, I mean, I didn't try to, I wasn't setting out to write a, you know, a, this mega, huge, best-selling monolith thing. I made 15 copies at Office Depot and went back to work. So this is totally God's sense of humor. And, um, and so they rewrite this and send it back to me. And I'm thinking, this is so funny. People think that uh, when you've done something successful, all of a sudden you're kind of a, a difficult person. Um, and they think you take everything personally. I'm, I don't at all. I think it's hilarious. And um, so I'm, they, they send this back and I read this thing and I'm going, I can't even recognize myself in here. Like, what did they do? So I sent, I sent a note to Matt and, and Jim, who loved my forward, but I said, you know, it seems to be that... And, and here's one of the chapter headings, just so you know kind of what's in the book. But one of the chapter headings is, you seem to be a really nice guy, but you're still going to hell. <laughs> right? I mean, it really involves some of the conversation that we don't 
have very that uh, that often. So it's a it's really a good book. So I sent it to them and I said maybe you need to get somebody else because you know they don't really want to print what I wrote. Well, Jim knows me, so he knows that I'm being funny about this. Matt thinks I'm offended. So Matt trying to smooth over this whole thing, right? Because he, he wants me to write the foreword. He, he writes me this note. You'll love this. I get a note from the atheist, right? And it says, Paul, maybe there's a way we could find language to compromise because you've got to remember we're dealing with Christians. It's baby steps. <laughs> Come on, right? That is so cool. <laughs> I love stories. I love being inside stories. I love being inside other people's stories. And a story is holy ground as far as I'm concerned. Um, people are stories. And, and it's going to take us a long time to begin to comprehend each other's stories. That's part of what eternity is all about as far as I'm concerned. There are a lot of things that I grew up believing that I don't believe anymore. And a lot of them had to do with the nature and character of God. Because I grew up evangelical, fundamental, Protestant. And uh, had a very distant, angry God. A lot like my dad. And, um, and there were a lot of words and language and part of how everything was framed that was very difficult for me. Um, especially inside some of the abuse that, that I experienced um, in, the, in the missionary kid culture that I grew up in. And... Um, Story has a way of getting past our watchful dragons, you know, our defenses. Any kind of creativity does. That's good. Creativity has a way of sneaking past and getting into precious places without asking for permission. And, um, and it creates more space. It creates some space that we can hear inside of. And, um, and I like story for that reason. That's why I wrote a story for my kids. Um, if you weren't here this afternoon, we have six children. Our youngest is 20. Our oldest is 33. We have seven grandbabies, six and under so far. That's from two of our six kids. So we're on our way to a small town. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, I wrote a story for the kids. Um, there's a lot of that frame. And I love good questions. Good questions that rock our world are important. And, um, and there's a lot of really good questions out there. Let me give you one of them. Where was creation created? Now, there's a good question. Where was creation created? Right? Because at one time, no, to use a time-bound language, but there was, there was a time when there was no time, when there was no creation. Right? And what, what was there? All there was was a relationship of three persons who shared absolute oneness. Right? That's all there was. Right? And, and that's everything. This relationship of three, and that's all there was. Now, just as a side caveat, I grew up with a word that just kind of scared us. Holy. Holy. There was a word that was very scary growing up. 
because it was some kind of moral perfection against which my life was, you know, adjudicated, and I was always found wanting. You know, but holiness was a really scary word. But here, let me let me back this up a little bit. When there was no space, time, or matter before there was any creation. Was God holy? Yes. Which means that holiness has nothing fundamentally to do with sin at all. It can't. Because he was holy and there wasn't any creation yet. We hadn't had a chance to kind of ruin things. Right? So whatever this holiness is, it's got nothing fundamentally to do with sin at all. The word means otherness or uniqueness or one of a kindness. And you know what that is? The kind of love that this God is. Other-centered, self-giving. That's a definition that comes from the early church, actually. Other-centered, self-giving. It means that oneness, remember? Three persons, oneness, right? There's one God. It means that oneness is a celebration of the other, not the diminishment or the absorption of another. And I don't care if you're applying it to marriage or community or anything else. Oneness is a celebration of the other. And it's very significant that this is self-giving love, not selfless. A lot of us think that it's supposed to be selfless. Oh, yeah? Then what is there to give? Right? This is self-giving. You don't disappear in this equation. In fact, you're absolutely essential for love to even exist in that sense of other-centered self-givingness. The healthier you become as a human being, the more significant is your expression of love. Who you are actually matters. The way you look at things, the, the peculiar manner of which you feel emotions you know, why you like that kind of ice cream and not that kind, you know, all, thank you. I'm, see, full on agreement. So, so again, this is, this is really important. So where was creation created? When all there was, was a relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Actually, it was um, breath, right, spirit, and word, and being, B-E-I-N-G, being, breath, word, and being. Because remember, prior to the incarnation, the word was neither male nor female. And one of the, another one of those questions is, why did Jesus come as a male? Right? And part of the answer to that is, it's because it's where the greatest amount of damage was. He's going to go to the worst place. Serious. Eight times in the New Testament it says through one, not anthropos, but anair, one male, sin entered the world. Eight times. It's very clear and it specifically uses the word for maleness. And part of what Jesus had to do was go to the place of greatest loss. That's part of it. All right? There's a whole bunch more we could talk about there. But where was creation created? when all there is is a relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in our minds, we make an assumption. We think God spins creation out there somewhere, outside of himself. Any theology that begins with separation is false, is a lie. 
Because where is creation created? In Jesus. John chapter 1. Nothing has come into being. Nothing that has come into being has come into being apart from him. Right? Creation is created inside the relationship of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Which, as Ken Blue would say, means that you were found in Jesus before you were ever lost in Adam. Right? Why does nothing separate you from the love of God? Because Jesus is the center of his Father's affection and you are in him. You were created in him. Nothing, everything is by, for, through, and in Jesus. It's the problem is we had a little Jesus. We had a little Western Jesus. And we had a Jesus that kind of tried to fit the gap between the division between the Father and creation. This is not true. The truth is, is that everything is in him, for him, by him, through him, sustained and held together in him. You know what this means? That when he then goes back into himself, into his own creation, he is still the creator. He didn't leave that behind. And when he walks on this planet, everything is in him. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Read the whole chapter. It will blow you away. It says everything is in him so that when he dies, it all dies. And when he rises, it all rises. What's the good news? The good news is not that God spun creation off, creation messed itself up, so there was this separation. And Jesus comes to be the bridge to fill in the separation. So if you are smart enough and you live long enough and you don't have Alzheimer's and you're not schizophrenic, you have the opportunity, if you can get your act together, to choose him. That's not the good news. The good news is not that you can receive Jesus into your life. The good news is that he already received you into his, into his anointing in the Holy Spirit, into his affection with the Father, into his relationship with the Father. That's the good news. But we're blind, we're lost, we're in darkness, we believe lies. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us to begin to teach us how to disagree with those lies and agree with the truth, who is a person. This changes everything. We live by the faith. Is it of the Son of God or in the Son of God? It's of. The prepositions are very, very important. We live by the faith of the Son of God. You have been saved by grace, right? You've been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. What's that a reference to? Faith. Faith. Whose faith? Jesus' faith in his Father. Either you have the power to save yourself or God did it. 
And the good news is he did it. Now, you can resist it potentially forever, from what I understand. And that is part of the respect that is granted to you as a human being by a God who created this massively, unbelievably intricate, magnificent creation called a human being. You have no idea how incredible you are. You have no idea. We're beginning to get a little bit of a sense of it. But the reason that we had a little itty-bitty Jesus is because we had a God that we couldn't trust. And because we had a little itty-bitty Jesus, guess what we did to our humanity? Ittier-bittier. Right? God has a high view of humanity. What do you think the incarnation is about? This is a God who becomes fully human and will remain so for eternity, who has fully joined his creation. When Jesus walks on this planet, he is still the creator. Everything is in him, held together, sustained in him. Here's a verse for you. Verses. You have a faith. Guess whose faith? Jesus' faith. You have a faith in you that is being tested by fire. A faith that is worth more than gold that perishes. And listen. And now you are receiving the goal, the telos of this faith. You are now receiving. Now that's process language. How many of you would prefer extreme soul makeover? Me too, right? Just give me a blue or a red pill, right? (laughs) Send me to Disney World and fix me by the time I get back, right? Extreme soul makeover. Enough with this process crap, right? I mean, really. I mean, we would prefer some kind of a magic bullet. This process stuff that I have to learn how to participate with, it's messy business, And the thing about it is that most of my damage comes through relationship. Most of my healing comes through relationship. Don't you hate that? (laughs) Especially guys. You know? Those guys that lived in caves and stuff during the Middle Ages, they had it right. (laughs) It's when they went back to town, all hell broke loose. Right? They had to have a family dinner or something. Right? It's the relationship that is so messy. You enter a relationship and you lose control. And you enter a mystery. Ask any married man. (laughs) Really? You have a faith that is being tested by fire, a faith that is worth more than gold that perishes. And now you are receiving, that's process language, the goal, the telos of this faith. What is the goal of Jesus coming to live inside of you? Here's what it says. The healing of your soul. The healing of your soul. Why did Jesus come and climb inside of our mess? Because he wants to heal our souls. And it's a process. We have to learn how to agree with the Holy Spirit against the lies that have dominated our world. And that takes some time. God will never become an abuser even for your own good. There is such a high degree of respect 
And there's lots of implications to what we're talking about. Let me say this, just so that you hear me clearly. I believe in wrath and fire and judgment. But I, I believe it from the perspective of a father. And let me explain this. We have six children. Our 25-year-old is Amy. Amy has what's called a micropituitary adenoma. It's a brain tumor. It's benign, but it grows. And so she has to take chemo twice a week orally in order to keep that thing from growing and to try to shrink it. She's been fighting this thing for five years. And yes, we have prayed and all kinds of things, and I believe that God can heal. You do know that all healing is temporary, physical healing, right? Soulish healing is permanent, but physical healing is temporary. You do know you're dying, right? I mean, is that a big surprise? Maybe you haven't been wanting to think about it, but it's the truth. We started dying from the moment of conception. It's like Baxter's dad says, well, how else do you think we get out of here? <laughs> right? So we're in a process. I, every faith healer I've ever known has died, just so you know. <laughs> and I believe God can heal. Amy has a micropituitary adenoma. Now, because of the existence of that little tissue, piece of tissue on the backside of her pituitary gland, she began to entertain a lie about herself that she was damaged goods and therefore not worthy of being loved. And it opened her up to some, to some relational havoc, which... She has come through very well, but it was really hard. Now, I am her father. Give me the power. I will be a flame of fire that would love to climb inside, not just the physical reality of this pituitary adenoma and burn it out of existence, but even so much more, the lie. Why? Because she has failed to live up to some expectation of perfection? No, because I love her and I want her to be fully free. It is not God's intention just to heal the damage of sin. He is coming to destroy it. Right? And it's a process. God won't heal you apart from your participation. Won't heal your soul apart from your participation. John the Baptist says, tell me if he's really the guy to his disciples. And they come back and they say, many were healed. But it doesn't say all. And that's where John's hope then emerges. This is Hebrews chapter 11. Yes, some received their back from the, you know, their dead back alive. They were able to stop nations with prayer, whatever, whatever, you know, this big list of things. And others by faith lived in caves and in holes in the ground, were sawn in half, were destitute, 
by faith. And the world was not worthy of their presence. That's who I want to be. I want to be someone that the world is not worthy of their presence. But it's not going to be based on some external sense of success and prosperity because sometimes the purposes of God are way bigger than our comfort. There is a God who climbs into the middle of our messes and begins to grow things that couldn't have existed otherwise. We love magic words, you know. Now we don't call it magic. We call it, uh, call it. We put other names on it, like holiness or you know righteousness. That's a good one. Or how about faith? That's a good one. You know, um, it's kind of like abracadabra. Uh, you know, uh, it's kind of like the magic words that move you from one kingdom to the other. You know, they don't. They're not in the Bible, but we sure have added them to it. You know, the sinner's prayer is not in the Bible. You know that, right? But it's kind of like magic. Now, I understand the idea of having experience where you are moving more deeply and openly in your relationship with God. That's true. But it's not because he got lost somewhere and you managed to find him. He's always had you in the center of his affection. Always. You just didn't know it. Right? And what what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit did on the cross... In Jesus, you didn't have anything to say about it, right? Either you can save yourself or you can't. You can't, just so you know, (laughs) right? So this creation that is created in Jesus, you're in it. It changes everything. You've been included into the affection of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, whether you like it or not. Why? Because he adopted you. You know the thing that Paul uses? He uses that language. He grabs it from the culture because the thing about adoption, both in the Greek culture and in the Roman culture, was that you could disown a biological child, but you could not an adopted child. This is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 11, verse 11, 10 and 11. This is a statement that is true and worthy of full acceptance that Jesus Christ is the Savior of all mankind, especially of believers. I think that's Paul tongue-in-cheek. Right? Because the believer part is a subset of the unbeliever part, right? of the whole humanity part. For God was in Jesus reconciling the world, the cosmos, to himself, not counting their sins against them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's there. We didn't grow up that way. I didn't. I had a theology where God the Father needed to be appeased. He was the one that was really the one that was really ticked off about everything. And so he sent Jesus, and Jesus then had to bear the wrath of his Father in order to be right with other people. Sound familiar? Yeah. 
sounded familiar to me too. It matched my dad. My dad was a very angry young man. And I never did live up to his expectations. And it took a lot of years to realize that my, that my relationship with God was not my dad expanded out. You know, but God was of a very different character and nature. And it took time, process. This is a God of relentless affection. And we're in a process. Let me give you an illustration because this will help. If I had two bars of silver up here, one was processed silver, one was sterling silver, and I said, which one do you like? You would immediately be drawn toward the sterling silver because sterling silver is bright and shiny and you can see yourself in it and it looks pretty. And processed silver is not. It doesn't reflect very well. It's kind of ugly. You know why sterling silver is so pretty? It's full of crap. (laughs) It's the truth. The impurities in sterling silver make it shiny and reflective. And all this is full of crap. Right? That's me. Sterling silver. See how pretty I can be, right? The facade, right? Look, I can be whatever you want me to be. Just tell me. Full of crap. Now, you're allowed to say that down here? Okay, never mind. So, I could say worse. Yeah, I can. He knows from personal experience. So, all right. So, let's say that the Holy Spirit... You know these songs that you're singing about being free and all this stuff and being whole and all this? You know those are prayers, right? Okay, you're like you're asking for this stuff? Just so you know. Right? Now, it's kind of a stack deck anyway. So you can either... Either you'll pray for yourself as far as, Oh, come on, I want to be free. You know, that's like the most dangerous prayer you can ever pray. Because all it is is giving permission, right? And And so it's... It's like, if you don't pray for yourself, God will find somebody to pray for you. And if he can't find anybody, he'll find somebody to do it in a language they don't know. Right? And so what happens? Well, I start going through something in my life. Things are, they're not working. My control isn't working quite as well. I can't seem to stay hidden, right? And a fire begins to melt all this stuff. Now, here's, here's what, how I used to think about it, is that God is going, okay, we're going to work on Paul's heart. So here's what we'll do, his soul. So what we're going to do is we'll get all this fire going and look, he's okay. It's all melting and now it's coming and, uh, crap, (laughs) right? Like he's surprised, right? Like he's disappointed now. Look, it's all this crap in your life. What's that's the whole point, right? So when this fire starts to happen and everything starts to melt, And all your stuff comes to... This is the point of refining silver, right? The stuff comes to the surface. Now, 
When stuff comes to the surface, you are closer to healing than when you were hidden inside of a nice shiny bar of silver. There is a process going on here. And you asked for it. Right? And the the beauty of this is it doesn't surprise God. He knows exactly how much crap there is in you. Right? And in me. Right? When it comes to the surface, my experience, we didn't know anybody could actually come to healing. When their stuff showed up, we booted them out. At this point, this is where it says, confess your hurts and faults one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. This is when we begin to scrape all that stuff off, right? When we're involved in community, you cannot, you were not designed to do this alone, but you can't keep your secrets either. We are as sick as the secrets we keep. The unconfessed is the unhealed. The beauty is that forgiveness existed prior to confession and repentance. It's because of what Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have done that you can confess. And repentance means a radical change of mind. You can participate in transformational change in your life and in the lives of the community of people that are around you. So, excuse me, I'm falling off the edge here. No, yeah, all right. I could go somewhere, I won't, but... Okay, now, there is, in this, what we're talking about in terms of this process, the relentless affection of God who is a purifying fire. This is the Father's heart. The Father is not going to be, he's not going to be satisfied until what keeps you from being free is utterly destroyed. And and a writer, uh, George MacDonald, who is the one who wrote a book called Fantasties, which was a fiction book, and it led C.S. Lewis in the direction of relationship with Jesus. George MacDonald wrote a book called Unspoken Sermons, and in it he says, if you trust the character of, of God, you will run to God with your arms wide open and you will say, please judge me to the core. Burn out of me everything that keeps me from being free. Fire is restorative. It's restorative. The whole intent, it is the fiery flame of God's affection for you. And if you're a parent, you understand that. If your view of God is such that God is lesser of a parent than you desire to be at your deepest longings, if God is less than that, then your imagination of God is wrong. Our love for our children originates in the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for one another. Process. I get to meet all kinds of people and get inside their stories and, and get to be a part and, and, and watch the unfolding of some pretty remarkable things. And um, I was in the somewhere in the Midwest, and a couple comes up, and they, they start putting photographs down on the table. 
And, uh, you know, we live in a world that's full of great sadness. It's full of brokenness, right? And um, we seem to have a really incredible capacity for doing damage both to ourselves and to each other. And, and that's, that's got to change. And we're a part of that change. Every choice you make every day changes the entire fabric of this cosmos. You matter, right? And part of the lie is that you don't. And what you do is inconsequential. It's not. You, you choose and vote every day for life or death. Because we live in an ocean of death, right? And we can choose life. Because we actually believe that life is bigger than death. Death is not an event at the end of this physical life. Death is the air we breathe when we're not forgiving one another. And when we're bitter and we hold on to stuff. And... and <laughs> One of the things that has really grounded me in the middle of all my losses is this thing that that ref, relates to living inside the grace of just one day. And, and I'll tell you about that because it is so helpful to me. People say who, who are looking at my life and they always ask me, you know, what's changed now that you've written this book, you know? And I say nothing that actually matters. And that's really important. And I told the folks this afternoon that I made 15 copies at Office Depot and those 15 copies did everything I ever wanted the shack to do. Because we have six kids and they got a copy each. Kim got a copy and then some friends and family. And the other thing that I always want people to know is that everything that matters to me was in place before I wrote it. Things that matter to me, identity, worth, value, significance, security, meaning, purpose, destiny, community, and love. Those are the things that matter to me. And they were in place. Now, it took a long time. I was 50 years old. And, uh, and I said this afternoon that Mackenzie's weekend represents 11 years for me of trying to work this stuff out. And beginning of 2005, when I finally felt healthy enough as a human being to write this story that Kim had been asking me to do, um, she didn't know it was a story, and neither did I at the time. She just said, write, would you write something? And she'd been asking me for about four years, and I hadn't felt ready until 2005. But at the beginning of 05, at the same time as I'm feeling healthy enough to do this, it's a nice tune. It tells you something about my family, too. We, I don't mind at all when phones ring when they're supposedly not supposed to. You don't worry about it. I had... Um, we lived for 17 years in a little town called Boring, Oregon. <laughs> it's on the way up to Mount Hood. The actual town's name is Boring, B-O-R-I-N-G, home of the Boring Baptist Church. And uh, so <laughs> we were at a wedding at the Episcopal Church, and uh, Kim, Kim's family is Minnesota, North Dakota, salt of the earth. These people genetically enhanced to all talk loudly at the same time and understand each other, you know. <laughs> I come from a religious family. We hide everything. We lie about most stuff. And uh, totally different worlds. And uh, I was at a wedding in, in Boring, and, uh, and not only did my phone go off during that moment where they say, does anybody here have any reason why these two shouldn't, you know? Talk about God's sense of humor. It went right to speaker during this silent moment. And one of Kim's sisters, Lynette, with a booming voice says, Hey, Paul, are you still in that silly wedding or what? 
And she said my name so I couldn't go, Nicholas, turn your phone off. <laughs> 2005, we're living in a little tidy house on the corner of 12th Street in Gresham. And in 2004, we'd lost everything which is a whole fun, incredibly painful story in itself. In my 11 years, one of the last things that I needed to really grapple with, as far as a big thing, there's lots of finished work to do, but as far as a big thing was the fear of financial insecurity, (laughs) which probably none of you have ever dealt with. But let me tell you, there is nothing quite like losing everything to help heal you of the fear of financial insecurity. That's when we learned that the opposite of more is enough, right? The opposite of more is enough, and we had enough. We had enough of everything that mattered to us. Well, the beginning of 04, at the start of (laughs) dealing with this issue, I knew we were in financial trouble, and I had a knockdown, kind of drag-out fight conversation with God. Now, I've never heard God speak audibly. I used to tell him I'd actually believe in him if he would just talk to me audibly, but it's never happened. But I've learned to recognize the voice, right? And I have no, quasi- no problems recognizing the voice because the Holy Spirit always says stuff to me that I wouldn't. <laughs> right? So I go into this for five days. I'm asking the same question. How come I've trusted you my whole life with our finances and... and uh, We've been up and down and up and down, sometimes really up and sometimes way down. And I've got this fear that grips me about financial insecurity, which, you know, if you stu- stood back and watched from the outside, you'd go, Paul, it's because you're an absolute control freak, right? <laughs> but, you know, I'm covering it up in good, nice Christian language, so it makes it a lot more palatable. And, and so I'm having this knockdown knock drag out with Jesus, and, and I'm going, how come? I've trusted you. And finally, day five, I hear, Paul, you have never trusted me with your finances. Are you kidding? Even that little piece of property you say is mine, I can't get my hands on. You'll manipulate relationships and shade the truth. You'll lie to save yourself. (laughs) He did not say self, but that's all right. (laughs) See, I wouldn't have said that. I mean, I would have said what he said, but, but here's what I would have said. I'd have said, oh, I'm so sorry you're in such pain. Come on, let's go find you some money. Right? Not, not, you have never trusted me. Well, as soon as God tells me that I have totally never trusted him about this, it becomes clear. I mean, it crushed me. So... I called up the guys in my life. I've got a bunch of guys that, that we do life together, my friends. And I called them up and I said, okay, here's my situation. This is at the beginning of 04, right? And I said, here's my situation. And I tell them what my situation is and I say, now look, I know you love me and I know you're guys, so you like to fix things. Please, please don't rescue me from this. Please, don't rescue me. Unless God, I gave God a way out, just in case, you know. (laughs) Unless God shows up as a burning bush or an angel in the middle of the night or something. Don't rescue me from this because you're probably going to be interfering with something that God is doing in my heart. Seven of those guys, the fall of 04, 
Seven of those guys took time off from work and showed up at the Clackamas County Courthouse in Oregon City and sat with me while they auctioned off the house we'd lived in for 17 years. And I bawled like a baby. You know why? Not because I lost the house. Because I have seven guys in my life who will show up and sit with me while they auction it off. I'm a missionary kid and a preacher's kid, man. I have stayed secluded and hidden my entire life. And now I have seven men who will come sit with me and cry with me. So we lost our house. We lost our cars. We lost pretty much everything that we owned, period. And we ended up moving to a little tiny house on the corner of 12th Street, a little rental house. And the reason we moved there is because one of the guys in the, in the group of seven that came sat with me uh, gave us a car that had been in a wreck but had gotten fixed. And that became our car, but we couldn't afford the gas to get to the train so I could get on the train to go to one of my three jobs. But this little house was 150 feet away from the train station. And Kim got a job at high school, Gresham High School in the bakery. And so she could walk to work, and I could get on the train and go to one of my three jobs on the train. And that's on the train, I had 40 minutes each way. And that's where I wrote a story for my kids for Christmas because it's all I had to give them that Christmas. It was in 2005 I was writing this story. 2005, the beginning of it, something unexpected happened. Joy showed up as a constant companion. I didn't even know that was possible. I was, I was saying this afternoon, you know, Joy had never spent the night. <laughs> right? In terms of my experience, by the next morning, everything sucked again. You know, I'm going, Joy has become a con- We have nothing, right? But we had enough, right? And Joy had become a constant companion. And I'm, think, I'm like, what is this all about? And what am I going to do that kind of... St- you know, shuts it down. <laughs> I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop. For six months, Joy is a constant companion every single day. I'm going, what is this? And I ended up in a conversation with a friend at breakfast, and I finally tell somebody about this. Six months into this, right? Halfway through uh, 2005. And I'm going, I got to tell you, I got Joy has become a constant companion for six months in a row, like every day. I don't get this. And he's smart enough to ask me. He's an artist. So he asked good questions. He said, so what changed at the beginning of of 2005? And suddenly I realized, I finally, in my process of coming to healing in my soul, I was at the place where I could finally make a very simple decision that had changed everything. And I didn't even realize it. It was such the next step in the process that I didn't realize it. And here's the decision I'd made to be a child, to stay inside the grace of just one day, just one day. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot. Let me tell you, I have spent my entire life creating imaginations that don't exist and spending real grace, today's grace, on things that don't exist all the ways that my kids have been hurt and harmed, all the jobs I've lost. I've been to my own funeral I don't know how many times. 
right? All these imaginations that don't actually exist. Conversations, I play them out, right? They'll say this and then I'll say the wrong thing and then, you know, so why even bother? I mean, all these things. And I had spent grace. And you only get grace for one day. Here's the verse. Sufficient to the day is the grace thereof. Take no thought for tomorrow. If you have a schedule and a plan, say, if God wills and I'm alive. Because you don't know. And leave it at that. Have an open hand with regard to it. But I've created all these imaginations, right? And then I took today's grace and tried to spend it on things that don't exist. And I'd stop doing that. But you can't stop doing that until you let go of control. And you can't let go of control if there's no one in your life that you can trust. And you can say you trust God all you want. Not so easy, is it? Right? To the degree there's control in your life means to that degree there's fear in your life. And to the degree there's fear in your life, it means that you don't know to that degree how much you're loved yet. And the journey you're on is that God wants to teach you that He loves you. Yeah, things don't necessarily go according to expectations. But to the degree that you don't live with expectations, to that degree, everything becomes a gift. Expectations draw a line beneath which nothing's acceptable as a gift. In the presence of God, in the present, in the present, there is fullness of Oh, yeah. Come on. Fullness of joy. And I'd mentioned that I, uh, that I wrote about this. And I said, I read Joy's blog. And Joy wrote, in 2005, Paul started to become a constant companion rather than an occasional acquaintance. See, when Jesus came, Joy came. It wasn't Joy that was leaving. I was running into imaginations that didn't even exist. And trying to control my world so that those things wouldn't happen. Spend today's grace on today. And I don't know if it's a Jewish thing. I haven't figured that out yet. I don't know if it's like six to six, but for, you know, for me, it's like when I go to sleep and when I wake up. So I'll spend today's grace on today. And people have asked me, how do you keep your head when all this is going on? I stay inside the grace of a day. Plus, you don't know who I'm married to. And I have friends who tell me the truth and aren't impressed. Right? Community. These things all matter. Let me wrap up the last little piece of the story here. 2005, I'm working three jobs. I'm trying to get this thing done for Christmas because I want to give it to my kids. I get it done. At least the first full manuscript, but I don't have any money to do anything with it. But I get some money at Christmas and I make 15 copies at Office Depot and I give six to the kids and one to Kim and two to cousins and then the rest I give to my friends. And I go back to work. Never crosses my mind once to publish the shack. Eventually, my friends kept giving it away to the point that it ends up in the hands of some guys in California that want it to become a movie. That starts a whole conversation about actually printing it, publishing it. We get it ready. I'm working three jobs. It takes some time. And we get it ready and send it to 26 publishers, all who turn it down. 
which is fine with me because I don't have any expectations, right? I'm living inside the grace of a day. And so everything is a decision about, okay, so what's in front of me and what's the Holy Spirit saying? So I, you know, so I asked the obvious question, how hard is it to publish a book? So two of those three guys created a publishing company. <laughs> one of the guys that sat with me in that group of seven guys loaned me some money. Another one of the guys had savings and the third one had a visa and a MasterCard. And one of the guys volunteered to ship books out of his house at night because he was putting in people's sprinkler systems during the day. And in May of 2007, we ordered 10,000 copies because you get a big price break at 10,000. We didn't know that that usually means 8,000 in your garage after two years when you run out of friends and family. The goal was in five years to get to 100,000 copies and then Hollywood would talk to you about a film. That's the only statistic that I knew at the time because Hollywood will talk to you. I didn't know that the average book only sold three to 5,000 copies its entire lifetime and if you can write a novel and sell 7,500, you have a mega bestseller. Yeah. <laughs> really? Isn't that weird? Didn't know that. So... We, uh, we don't have any marketing. We have no promotion. Nobody knows we exist. And we set up a website. In the first 13 months, out of that garage, a storage unit, two storage units, and the local printer, we spent less than $300 in marketing and advertising and shipped over a million books. Oh, we're brilliant. <laughs> Come on, really? Totally a God thing, right? 15 copies did everything I ever wanted it to do, Right? And so now the book has gone internationally. 43 languages, 19 million sold. It's in the top 100 books of all history. Right? No. And, that, and I know that's a praise. It's a praise, okay? The Germans published the book. Their version is called Die Hütte. You think that's funny? The Italian version is Il Refugio. Di Hutta. Il Refugio. That's why I say the Germans and the Italians could have never ruled the world together, you know? <laughs> so the, the, the Germans love, I mean, the book becomes this monster bestseller in Germany. And my publisher in Germany is Allegria, which is the number one publisher of esoteric materials in Europe. Esoteric equals New Age. I'm their Jesus New Age guy. It's awesome. I speak at New Age conferences about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? I mean, it's, it's cool. Right? So, and I tell you I'll always have these, you know, post-Reformational evangelicals from Europe, and they'll stand up in, in their suits, and they'll say, well, you know that the esoterics have adopted you, right? Like it's an accusation. I go, yeah, isn't that the best? That's so cool, isn't it? And they go, what? <laughs> so, well, you're not talking to them. And frankly, they're a lot nicer than most Christians I know. <laughs> well, come on, right? My people, they're not easy to get along with. I can talk about them. They're my people, right? Narrow evangelical fundamentalists. Mm. So... Germans, they decided they wanted to do a documentary about my life. What? Really? Sure. Why not? 
you know? So they follow us with a camera crew. They hire a woman named Susanna. Susanna is a world-class documentarian. She's been up the Amazon, indigenous tribes, and all that stuff. And so she comes to us after this Europe thing, and she says, we want to come to Portland, to Oregon. And we would like to film, interview you, your family, your friends, and then do site location shots and stuff in Oregon for 10 days. May of 2011. Great. Sure. (laughs) Okay. They said, we have one favor. Do you know a videographer? Because then we don't have to, you know, fly somebody from Germany. They'll have the equipment already in Oregon. They'll know Oregon so they can find the site locations. Do you know a videographer? I said, I know one. His name's Joe Khalil. He's worked for Channel 8. He's done the Rose Festival for years. And he's a professional videographer. And, uh, but he's the only one I know in Oregon. Oh, by the way, Joe was one of the seven guys that sat with me at the county courthouse in the fall of 2004. But he's the only videographer that I knew. So I connected Susanna with Joe, and they started talking logistics, and I was out of the picture. What I didn't know until later is that Joe said to Susanna, I can't do the job. He said, I've been looking at my schedule. I'm booked up the very days that you're coming, the 10 days you're coming, and I can't do it. But he said, but I know all the videographers in Oregon, and I can hook you up with uh, Bill Dolan. Bill Dolan um, will do the job. So he connects Susanna with Bill Dolan. Bill Dolan, in his conversation with her, says, Susanna, I've been looking at the schedule. I can't do it. Uh, But he said, I know you're in a jam, so this is what I'll do. I'll take the job and subcontract it to a friend of mine named Kevin Feltz. Well, I don't know anything about this, right? So one of the places that they wanted to do a site location shot was at the little tiny house, the little rental house on the corner of 12th Street where I finished writing the shack, where Kim could walk to the high school bakery and I could get on the train. And then we were going to take the train downtown to where I was working. So I had to call up the the two single moms that were living there, and I say, uh... I have a really odd request. There's a German publisher that would like to film at your house. What do you think? <laughs> why, why would a German publisher want to film at our, you know, the house that they're renting, right? Well, I wrote a book. What book? The Shack. Are you kidding? Right? So they'd read it. So they're like over the moon about this. I'm standing on the porch of the little corner house on 12th Street. Susanna this documentarian from Germany is standing next to me when Kevin Feltz, the videographer I don't know, walks up. And he's looking around and he says, Hey, Paul, can I ask you a really odd question? Sure. He said, Back when you were living here, you know, 2005, did you have a Christmas where you had absolutely nothing? Now, I I don't know if you've hung around videographers That's not a videographer kind of question, right? And I'm going, yeah, why? He said, do you remember someone anonymously slipping some money under your door at Christmas? I said, yeah. He said, well, that was me. I went, what? He goes, oh, yeah, here, let me tell you what happened. So he said, 2005, I'm working, I got a little office here in Gresham, and I'm sharing office space with this other guy. And we didn't work together, we just split the office, right? And so one, I get this nudge at Christmas, and what I think is the Holy Spirit telling me to give some money at Christmas 
to someone who had nothing. And I didn't know anybody like that. And I was kind of in a quandary about it. And one day, I don't even know why it came up, and I'm talking to this other guy that I shared office space with, and it comes up. And I tell him about this, that I feel a nudge to give some money at Christmas to someone who didn't have anything. But I don't know anybody like that. He said, Paul, I didn't realize it was this house till I drove up here today because he didn't tell me who lived here. He just wrote down an address on a piece of paper. And I drove by at Christmas in the middle of the night. I put five $20 bills in an envelope and I slipped them under your door. I said, Kevin, tell me who the name of this guy is. Who's this guy that you shared office space with? He said, his name is Scott Klausner, one of the seven guys who sat with me at the county courthouse. I said, Kevin, I said, Kevin, you don't understand. That hundred bucks, it paid for a couple things Kim and I needed right there, but it gave me the extra money to go down to Office Depot and print the first 15 copies of the shack. Yeah, baby. Yeah. Come on. Sure. Yeah. Well, it took a secular German publishing company to decide to do a documentary and two videographers to turn it down for me to meet the man who gave me the extra money so I could give my kids a Christmas present that year. Right? See, there is a God who is good all the time, who's involved in the details, and you matter in this equation. Who you are matters. Who you're becoming matters. And God is not going to be content until you become everything you were desired and, and, and created to be. Not going to happen. I mean, you feel that for your own children. Even for, if you don't have children, for your nieces and nephews, right? I mean, you want them to be fully alive and fully free. Jesus did not come to start a religious conversation. He came to show us what it's like to be fully alive and fully human. And this is the God who pursues us, who gets involved in the messy process of relationship and who respects you enough that he will not heal you apart from your participation. You're going to have to make some decisions and choices along this way. But the good news is he knows exactly how long it's going to take. And he will never leave you or forsake you in the process. Never left or forsake his son. You do know that, right? You do know that? Okay. You know that he did not abandon his son on the cross. People say, well, what did, why was Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that's the first lines of a hit song? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. It's a hit song. All the Psalms are hit songs. They are. When they were written, they were things that people were singing all the time. And you know when somebody sings the first lines of a song, where does your mind go? Through the song, right? These are the first lines of a hit song. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You want to hear a a couple other lines in that song? Listen to this. You do not despise the affliction of the afflicted, nor will you turn your face from him. But when he cries, you will hear. That is in Psalm 22. And Jesus knows the whole psalm. Why does he cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know why he cries that? 
This is the first time in his existence, prior to the incarnation, through the incarnation, that he could not sense the presence of his father and he could not hear his voice. Why? Because he became my sin. He entered into my lostness and my crap. And he cries, my cry. That's my cry my whole life. Where are you, God? I can't hear you. I can't sense you. Where are you? And Jesus, not only inside all of my mess, but in all of ours corporately together, in all that lostness, he knows the truth. He feels everything that we do. But he knows the whole psalm. He knows you will not turn your face from me. And the writer in Hebrew says he will never, ever, 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 never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. And the word forsake is the same word that Jesus uses on the cross. He cries my cry. And then he says this, but into your hands I commit my spirit. If he thought his father had abandoned him, there is no way he would cry that. He says, I give you everything I got. I can't feel you. I can't sense you. But I know you. I know you. And the beauty of this is that Paul the Apostle writes in this words, telling us where was God the Father when Jesus was hanging on the cross. For Papa was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. Did he abandon his son? Absolutely not. No father would do that who had any health at all. He climbed inside that mess with his son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was not separated from his father. He felt it because that is the lie that we've embraced. And he cries our cry, but then he makes the greatest statement of faith a human being ever has made. In the middle of all that lostness, I trust you. I trust you. That's the God who pursues us. The God who climbs into our stuff to heal our hearts. The process of the soul, as excruciating, as exposing as it is. It's time to be children of the light. To walk in the light as he himself is in the light. To the praise of his glory. Amen. 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 this afternoon too brought us all to tears and then he's like I'm done you come and finish this Brent <laughs> okay um, I, I asked him to stay for for because uh, I wanted him to pray something specifically um, actually real quick too tomorrow Paul's going to be in Santa Cruz um, Rod and Eileen just stand up for real, real quick this is Rod and Eileen from Santa Cruz <laughs> pastors I saw Rod earlier but I didn't see Eileen pastors of uh, Kainos uh, is right Kainos and um, you're meeting at some hall tomorrow. Portuguese hall. Portuguese hall at 2 and Obrigado. 7 p.m. Yeah. So if you want more, he's still in the Bay Area tomorrow. Um, 
But I asked Paul earlier if he would pray specifically this. Um, I, I, I know there's a, some of you out there who are authors or want to be or have other expressions of just needing to get it out. You've heard the story of how God met him and did the impossible when he didn't even have the money and all the rest. And a lot of you are in that place like you have these dreams and God's going to have to do something for this for them to spark. But I just wondered if you would pray into that for those. Absolutely. Let me make a couple of statements. One is, to the best of your ability, don't get your identity stuck inside your creativity. Creativity is an expression of play, not a place to find your identity. Your identity is in Jesus. And your significance doesn't come from what you create or do. It's who you are. Your significance comes from who you are not what you do. I can go back tomorrow. My family would tell you this. My kids, Kim would tell you this. My friends would tell you this. I could go back and clean toilets tomorrow because I know I'm good at it. I'm serious because I am not identified by what I do. I am free to clean toilets. If this doesn't work for children, if this doesn't work for first century slaves, it's probably not true. Right? It's got to work for people who are in coercive environments or children. It's got to be that simple. And so in terms of creativity, as best you can. Now, sometimes God will bring success into your life because he knows it's going to bring, bring crap to the surface in a way that failure never could. I'm serious, right? The shack is not a reward for a life well lived. If you knew, if we took the time and you knew about my 11 years, you would go, this is evidence of grace. Right? My wife saved my life and paid a huge price for it, just so you know. We cannot measure success the way the world does it. And if you're trying to extract identity or sense of worth or value or significance or security or those kinds of things from it, you put your identity in anything that can be taken away from you, it's just a matter of time. Because God will not take second place to anything. He will be central to everything. Right? So he's coming after it. And he doesn't care how gold-chained it is. It's still a chain. And so when it comes to creativity, we get to participate. And every human being creates. You know this because you've done it with creating imaginations that don't exist, that are expressions of fear. And then trying to spend real grace on things that don't actually exist. So you know you can create. And we all do it in so many different ways. We are creators because we're made in the image and the nature of a creator. The Holy Spirit, this is her thing. She is a redeeming genius and she is all about creativity. She is a river. And so what I want to do, and see, and I think not only are we on the cusp of a reformation in which this planet is not only changing now, but it is in the process of a major transformational re-education about the character and nature of God. And at the core and center will be this affection that is other-centered and self-giving. But we're also on the cusp of a reformation of the arts. 
because we have split the head so far from the heart, it's created this massive space into which pornography has come in and all of these false imaginations have entered in an attempt to feed the soul. We need artistic expression because it unites the soul with the mind. And in the West, we have become so lost inside of our heads, and especially men, that we don't even know how to feel anymore. You can't shut down certain emotions. You can't pick and choose. And the arts come in. You know, and you know this. You know that there have been certain songs that have penetrated to the core of your person in a way a sermon never has been able to reach. It did something to unite the soul, the, the heart, and the head. Right? And so the arts are really significant. But the trap is that you will begin to believe that that's your identity. And one of the ways you can tell is if somebody doesn't like it. And the question is, uh, let me put it this way. I was with a friend of mine who's writing a book. I love her. If you've read Crossroads, it's Nathan Riedeveld's mom. And Nathan is, Cabby in the Crossroads is a 100% true character. I mean, for real. I put a real person inside a fictional story. He's a Down syndrome boy. And his mom is writing an important book. And I said to her, so if you write this and you do this artistic, creative expression, put your blood, sweat, and tears into this thing, and it touches one person, will that be enough? And the thing I love about Pam is that she is an honest human being. And she said, no. And it was one of those moments where, you know how the Holy Spirit lets you say stuff and it makes you sound brilliant? And you've never said it before, but you know everybody else thinks, you must have thought this for years, right? Because the Holy Spirit loves to make us look good. I mean, I'm serious. And it was one of those moments. And I said to her, well, then, then you don't understand the value of the one and you wouldn't have left the 99 to go find just the one. And her response was, oh my gosh, two by four upside the head, right? (laughs) Because the one matters. The one matters, even if you're the one, because you are. And creativity becomes play. God does not heal you because he wants to use you. I come from a sexual abuse history. Do you think I'm excited about anybody using me? God doesn't heal you because he wants to use you. He heals you because he loves you. And then he invites you to play. You get to be the child. He gets to be the one who knows what he's doing. And one of my prayers anymore, please, Papa, unless you think it's absolutely necessary, don't tell me what you're doing. Right? I like being surprised. He heals us because he loves us and then invites us to play. So my prayer for you in the name of Jesus is that you learn how to play. You learn how to be the child and not get your identity locked into this stuff. And may God increase your vocabulary past the 250 words of worship that Christians are stuck inside.
may you learn to create as an authentic human being and not a religious one. Because that's the stuff that's going to feed people's hearts and lead them into the truth who is a person. This is about relationship. So in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I pray that there would be a release of your ability to play inside a sense of the relentless affection that is so powerful you can't change it. You are the one. You are the one that he left the 99 to go find. You matter. And then creativity becomes an expression of who you are. Don't look for a spiritual gift. You are the spiritual gift. The uniqueness of who you are. And as that comes to wholeness, your ability to create inside that will never be matched in the cosmos or the history of the human race. Because nobody can see things and speak things and draw things and say things and act things and sing things the way that you do. Nobody. You matter. Amen. Thanks.